Hello, everyone. Welcome to the ATC Office Hours. I am here with Chris Tritabaugh, the golf course superintendent at Hazeltine National Golf Club. And we are doing this Office Hours talking about or doing a review of the organic matter, total organic material by depth testing, which has been done now for the fourth autumn in a row. 20, yeah, fourth autumn in a row. So we've got uh, three growing seasons of data to look at, and it's been really interesting to see the timeline of that. We did this at the end of November last year, Chris, for the very first ATC office hours. And I know there's a lot of people who really enjoyed hearing about that. So I'm so glad to have you back to discuss this again, and, and hopefully it will be equally interesting for people. Uh, yeah, I hope it will be interesting too. Hopefully there are people watching. Uh, I know I've got this link to my Twitter account, but I suppose if you're watching, then you don't need to know that information. So, um, but you know, hopefully people will, um, join in and, and ask some questions and hear some things that maybe will be, um, somewhat eye-opening to them or, uh, new information or confirming, you know, things we've talked about before. Yeah, it's this is um, something the total organic material testing by depth. It's something that is relatively new to me. Um, I started doing this in 2017. Um, and I'd been aware of it before, but I didn't really see the value in it. And then once I started doing it, I, I couldn't believe that I hadn't been doing it before. Because there's so much work that's done to golf course putting surfaces or other high quality turf grass, there's so much work that's done that's disruptive and uh, difficult to do and costly, like spreading sand, like uh, punching holes, like removing material, like scarifying or verticutting. And all of that work is disruptive to the playing surface. And it's done for the purpose of in a lot of cases, it's done for the purpose of managing organic matter or controlling organic matter or diluting organic matter or controlling thatch, all of those type of things. That's why it's done. And before I was doing this OM246 testing, I was just doing the work, but I wasn't really evaluating what the effect was on the... Dis on, if our purpose was to do was to manage the organic matter or to change the soil organic matter. And we were doing all of this work to, to do that. Um, I wasn't actually checking it and, and measuring what the effect was. So it's been really um, amazing for me to see how useful it is to actually measure the results of this work. And it turns out that a lot of things follow from that as you've seen as you've done this since uh, 2019. <clears throat> Should we jump right in, Chris, and look at the, uh, yep. look at some of the results? Yeah. So, so I can bring that up on the screen. So what, um, what we are showing on the screen, and I've, my camera popped Yeah, my connection is going bad. Can you hear me, Chris? I can hear you just fine, even though your your uh, video is paused. Okay. 
Well, good. I'm going to leave the video off and uh, let's just look at this chart, the total organic material time series at the zero to two centimeter depth. So this is the top 0 0.8 inches of the root zone. And this is uh, looking at data from 2019. The first samples were taken in the spring of 2019 from one of the practice greens at Hazeltine. And then the first full sampling was done in autumn of 2019. And then it was repeated again, autumn of 2020, autumn of 2021. And now what we're looking at here is the autumn of 2022. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage people on this chart to compare the same dates, uh, autumn to autumn to autumn to autumn. And that goes 4.7, 4.9, 4.9, 5.2. The dashed green line that's just below six is the average for bent grass greens at that depth. So you started off a little bit below average, uh, and three years later, you remain a little bit below average, but it's been creeping up 4.7, 4.9, Yeah, I, <clears throat> I think, you know, a, a couple of things that are interesting about this chart. So the open circles represent each individual sample just so That's... people can understand uh, what we're looking at. And then the filled in circles, the orange circles in the line represent the average of each of those sampling dates. Um, one thing that is, I don't want to wander off course, but one thing I think is interesting because people might look at those individual samples and think, wow, there's a, a pretty good range there, which there there is, especially that first year, you know, there was one that was four and one that was six. And it might be worth noting, Micah, that we have um, sort of specifically chosen greens to sample that have both are small with a lot of focused foot traffic and then larger greens that would have um, less focused foot traffic. And what we're finding is that those greens, as one would expect, the smaller greens with more focused foot traffic are the lower OM numbers, whereas the larger greens less focused foot traffic are tending to be the higher um, numbers. Yeah, it's so when you have on, on the individual greens, is it the greens that are the best performing in the best growing environments, lots of air movement, plenty of sun that tend to have a little bit more organic material in the soil? Yep, for sure. Those are definitely the higher performing greens, uh, the greens that I don't think about, that I don't spend a lot of time worrying about or wondering about how they're gonna react to certain weather situations. Those are the ones that tend to have a little bit higher organic matter um, content. Those are the ones that are higher on that on that chart. That's, that's good. So, um, yeah, I think I've heard John Lobenstein talk with <clears throat> Frank Rossi, maybe in uh, talking with Joe Galati also on on a couple of podcasts and and he was mentioning that he's also found on the nine courses that that uh, he's working with in Montgomery County Maryland uh, that there was a bit of surprise that when they started testing for the total organic material in the root zone they found not that high organic matter is a cause of problems on greens but high organic matter in the soil may be the result of healthy grass so yeah. we, we i would have had this mentality 10 years ago also just being scared of organic mm -hmm. matter in the soil and mm -hmm. i don't know 
I don't know how we all got so scared of it. Um, I mean, I guess because we've all seen problems. If you have thatch, I, I suppose a, that that's probably it. So the fear probably comes from this idea that almost everyone knows what it looks like when you have way too much. Mm -hmm. uh, and so then the, the goal is to try to have as little as possible. But as you and I have discussed many times, and I think these results are sort of showing, I don't know that having as little as possible is the, is the best solution either. So, you know, if, if way too much is poor, um, as little as possible is not, is not the opposite of that. It's not, it's not a, it's not a, I don't know how to, how to articulate that, but just having the least amount possible is not, is not going to give you the best result if the most amount possible is giving you something that's terrible. So I think somewhere in between is, is a result that uh, people will be quite happy with as, as we're seeing here. Yeah. And I think it can be really useful to actually measure it. And when, uh, I just, I still look back on the types of seminars that I would teach or the articles I would write 10 years ago, and I was recommending certain amounts of sand be applied, certain amounts of surface area removal be done. And I wasn't ever really checking what was actually the situation in the greens and or in the soil and now it just makes so much sense to measure um what actually is in the soil and then compare that to the work that's been done and um uh, because when you look at this chart because you know the work that you did in the 2020 growing season the 2021 growing season and in the 2022 growing season and you've been able to adjust that work a little bit year after year and you're adjusting it based on how the surfaces are performing and also on how the organic matter is changing. And I'm sure if the organic matter jumped to 8%, uh, you would, you know, you would say, whoa, I'm going to, I'm going to make a big change in the way I'm going to manage yeah. in the next right. year. Right. Yeah. It, and it, um, you know, we should probably tie, you know, practices to these numbers as well. Um, so if we go back and think about, um, okay, let's, let's just skip the idea of the top dressing for now, but let's talk about aerification practices, because that would be the thing that I think anyone looking at this would think, oh, if I want to reduce these numbers, then I need to do some kind of aerification. Um, 2019, we did, um, you know, this is, this is how, how, uh, I can't even remember what we did in 2019. We did something in August, but I don't remember exactly what it was. And then in 2020, I recall that we um, did a about a half inch tine, solid tine, and then filled those holes with sand. Um, and then in 2021, we did a dry jacked, which I think most people will know what that is with a substantial amount of sand going, going into mm -hmm. the profile. Um, and then in 2022, we did no aerification throughout the course of the year. So um, it, it's not as if, so somebody might say, oh, aha, you didn't aerify and the number went up a little bit, which certainly could be the case. But also those aerifications in, in 1920 and 21 weren't dropping these numbers. They were just keeping them, them level. Um, 
I don't know if there's any insight into that, but it, it's 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 interesting to me that if the goal, if con conventional wisdom, I guess, has has been that we want to drop this number down to as low a point as possible, that the um, that and then airifying is thought to be the way to do that. That maybe maybe that isn't doing that in a way that people think it is. I guess does it, if that makes sense. Hopefully. Yeah, and it's it's really the amount of sand that you put down. So when you're doing airification, it makes it easier to get more sand into the root zone. And that's a way to cause a decrease in the organic matter. But the decrease in the organic matter is not really the goal. The goal is to have the best playing conditions possible. So let's let's look at some... The, so this is looking just at the 0 to 2 centimeter depth. I'm going to move to another... Uh, chart that was on your report, Chris. And this just kind of shows what's typical for bent grass greens at the zero to two centimeter depth. So this is a, a curve that the higher that curve is, the more likely that you'd see a, um, a test result at that number. So for example, if you were at 2.8%, that curve is very low. If you were at 1%, I've never seen a bent grass green. I've never tested a bent grass green that's at 1% organic matter in the top two centimeters, that that line would be at zero. And I've also never tested um, above about 15%. So it would be extremely unlikely to be less than less than one or above 15. And it is more common to be at 5.2%. And that puts you, what is that? 33% are below, 35% mm -hmm. below. Six, 60 some percent above so that's pretty typical yeah i mean you're you're below average but yeah is it worth noting too just for, at the beginning of this discussions for anybody who hasn't maybe uh doesn't isn't aware of this of the om246 and how this is they might be looking at this thinking wow that's a really high percentage but is it worth um noting like how that th this is done just briefly yeah why don't why don't you describe yep. how you collect the samples yep. and then uh, maybe you say how it's done at the lab and I'll correct you if you miss anything. Yep. Okay. Um, okay. So let me see if I can uh, find some photos of this. I think I have some good photos. So give me a moment. Um, Yeah, so this is, I will talk while you're looking for the photos. So the big distinction between this type of organic matter testing, and I, I've got a ton of blog posts about this on my website at asianturfgrass.com. So um, anybody that would, uh, would like to check this out, go to asianturfgrass.com and you can search for soil organic matter or uh, look for OM246 and you can find uh, plenty of information and I've got blog posts like um, a tale of two tests is one of them um, there's there's various tests where I describe exactly what the difference is between these all right Chris okay, so, looks like right. we're set up to share your screen so um, I'll, I'll bring this up yep there we go um Okay, so I think this is this will work. So here here is a core. So I've taken this core out of the green, 
and you can see that uh, you know there's there's various um, channels, sand channels in there, probably old aerification, old dryject, it might be. Um, and then I've marked this um, cutting board, this clipboard with uh, zero with two centimeter increments. And I'll just use a, a blade like this. And what I will do is, uh, here's another look at the core. People, you know, this is a good way. I get asked, do you see layering from the way we're gonna get into how we top dress? But I get asked if I see layering and there's there's the answer, not, not really. I suppose a person could maybe identify some layers in there if they were really uh, keen to do so, but I don't think we see any layering. So here's what I do, I cut the, uh, top two centimeters off and on a putting green because the grass, the verdure, is that how we've, we've discussed how the proper way to say that, Micah, have we decided? I, no, no, I've, I've heard both. I, it's, I hear verdure and I hear verdure and, mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know. Um, okay. I'm going to call it verdure. So we leave that on. So we don't cut that off. That's so the above cut. ground. That's, that's the technical term for above ground plant material yep and then um this is a fairway sample i've done a little bit of fairway sampling i'm looking for oh, there's some bales i thought i had photos of uh them cut into three but i think this is the best this is the best photo to identify and then i basically cut this sample into um three three sections so that's mm -hmm. how the sampling does and then i lay these out to dry um and they get quite firm this is something i've noticed that i think is is sort of uh, maybe a bit of an anecdotal thing, but I noticed that when I dry these samples out, when I take them out, I lay them out on the ground and I let them dry for three, four or five days, um, this, the, the samples at four to six centimeters and even the samples at two to four centimeters tend to crumble and fall apart. Whereas the, um, the sample, the two centimeter sample becomes like almost like a rock. Like it, it is so hard um, it, it, I couldn't, you almost can't in your hand cr crumble it. it, it, you would need some type of implement to, to crumble that two centimeter, um, sample up, which I think <clears throat> if we talk about firmness of greens, I think that there's something to that. So if you've got sand, which our greens are sand, um, and probably the, the top six centimeters in anybody's putting surfaces, uh, are going to be mostly sand if you don't have a lot of organic matter in there that when that dries out it's not going to have a lot of firmness um, to it and that's that's what i'm seeing again that's kind of an anecdotal thing it's not but i think that that um, when we talk about what what makes a firm green there's there's no doubt that some amount of organic matter mixed into and being a part of that sand is 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 um is key to gaining some kind of firmness in the top top portion of the putting green. Um, so then these samples go, um, I'll try to explain this as best I can, but Micah, you certainly know this better than I. They go to right, the lab. So you, well, oh. you mentioned drying it. Why are you, why don't you just put them in a bag and send them straight to the lab? Well, um, you, so you don't want there to be any kind of activity. So this would, this would be the case for uh, both a, a soil fertility sample, a soil nutrient analysis, and for organic matter, I guess, to some degree, is you don't want there to be any decomposition of, of anything. Uh, you know, certainly from a nutrient analysis standpoint, you don't want there to be a change in what, what's happening um, from a nutrient standpoint. And if it's wet and it goes into a bag 
and it's in the bag um, for some amount of time being shipped to the the lab. For us, we ship these to Ohio, like all your samples go. And you know, for us, that that shipping time is only maybe two to three days. But um, you know, even in that amount of time in a sealed bag, there could be a lot of activity going on. That's that's exactly right. So by drying the sample, as soon as it comes out of the ground, it essentially freezes it, and it um, it it stops the microbial activity, and it stops plant growth. And uh, we don't have any organic matter decomposition, and we don't have any more organic matter production. And so, the idea is by drying it prior to sending it to the lab, it just um, makes the test result as accurate as possible and as understandable as possible because we know that we're testing um, not something that happened during shipping, um, but something that 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 is like the sample was right when it came out of the ground. And so then these samples go to the lab where they they pulverize. Uh, well, that, that's not the right term, but no, uh, this one. This one doesn't. This one just goes well, into just, a great. This one goes just, in a. Go. You you explain. I'm, it goes in a big crucible, okay. and it gets and it gets burned. And and so then, um, as I understand, the organic matter basically becomes a a sort of uh, a weightless uh, material, or is it screened after that? I can't recall. Um. No. Okay. Uh, I'll handle the lab procedures, yep. Chris. I won't. I won't make you. I won't make you speculate. So <laughs> for the for the OM two four six, and I see uh, John has a question. Do they oven dry the sample at the lab? Um, the answer is yes. So um, so this sample goes to the lab, and then it is dried, and then the dry weight is taken of the sample. But these these samples that are tested for OM246 are not ground with the current method that we're using because the idea is to measure everything. And I will um, I will explain first how the OM246 samples are tested, and then I will explain again what the difference is uh, between this and typical soil organic matter testing or traditional soil organic matter testing. So these samples are dried at the lab, then the dry weight is taken, they're in a great big crucible that can hold at Brookside Labs where these samples are tested, they that can hold, uh, the crucible can hold 250 uh, cubic centimeters of material, which is about one cup of material. And um, so we, I like to send a sample that's about 100 cubic centimeters or 125 cubic centimeters, which fills about half the crucible. And this is tested uh, so that so the dry weight is measured after it's oven dried at the lab. And then it's placed in a muffle furnace and burned at 440 degrees for two hours. And then the weight is checked again, and then it's burned again for 30 minutes, and and that's to ensure that there's a constant weight. So they take the the weight after a two-hour burn at 440 degrees Celsius, and then they um, will burn it again and make sure that all the organic matter has been burned off. And the organic matter burns to ash, which has a small weight, but it's just assumed in this case that the weight loss on ignition or the mass loss on ignition 
is the organic matter content of the sample. So that's how that works. And um, so then we get, in this case, uh, for the most recent samples at Hazeltine in the top two centimeters, that was 5.2% organic matter on average, which was uh, 52 grams of organic material per kilogram of soil. So that's how that works. Now, the, the distinction between this method for measuring the total organic material or the OM246 and what is called soil organic matter, and this is something that I've written about on my blog, and I've tried to explain it in seminars, and I uh, basically it, it comes down to this. Soil organic matter um, is soil. It, it, anything that is plant material is not part of the soil organic matter. Now, turfgrass managers, I always think of thatch as part of the soil. I think of roots as part of the soil, but they're not part of the soil organic matter, not the way a soil scientist would think of it. So when you have the Soil Science Society of America, their definition of soil organic matter is the humic portion of the soil excluding any living and dead undecomposed plant material. But when we think about managing the organic material at the top of a golf course putting green, for example, we are interested in the root mass, as Nathan mentioned in the chat. Um, we are interested in the thatch. We are interested in the rhizomes that may be growing. We think of that as organic matter. And it, it is organic matter, but it's not soil organic matter. It's plant material. From a soil science perspective, all of that stuff is plant material. So when you take a soil sample and you send it to a lab, the first thing the lab does is dry the sample. Then they grind the sample or crush the sample and they pass it through a screen. They pass it through a screen and on the screen, it captures all of the undecomposed living and dead plant material. So all of your thatch, all of your roots, all of your stems, all of your verdure, all of, all of anything that's plant material, it, it gets caught on that screen and it gets thrown in the garbage. And what passes through the screen is considered to be soil. And with it, any of the humic material, that is the soil organic matter, which is an important number to know, but it tends to be when I've compared it the uh, the organic matter, the soil organic matter that's from a zero to 10 centimeter depth, uh, compare that with the total organic material at the top two centimeters, that tends to be um, about five or six times difference. So if you'd have a, in this case at, at Hazeltine, I think you were about 1.2% organic matter. Yep, that's what I recall. Um, and you're like 5.2. So that's, yeah, that's a four times difference. So it's something like that. So let's see. I'm going to... Yeah, it's, it's on a different report, Chris. If Is you, it way down? No. I mean, if you want soil organic matter, it's on a... Oh, it's, it's on, on the, your, the nutrient on, analysis. Okay. It's on the nutrient analysis report. Okay. But I, I'm going to... Yeah, I mean, Nathan... Nathan asked about it, made that put that question mm -hmm. in the in the chat, and I think he's hundred percent right. So root mass does probably also play a role in the firmness 
of the dry core sample. And so this way of looking at that includes that root mass, as you just kind of said, as part of that structure that is making the firmness. So I think if you want to have greens that are as firm as possible and you want to have a, a an OM2 number that is uh, going to um, produce that kind of firmness, I think you want to be aware of the fact that root mass is playing a part. And so that becomes then becomes part of the, the measurement. Okay, Chris, yep. I'm going to try one time to take myself off this and then okay. bring myself back on and see if it refreshes my camera. So I should riff and uh, come up with some kind of yeah, hopefully, hopefully I don't crash the stream. If if I okay. crash the stream, I apologize to everybody. But uh, let me just see if I can make the the camera come back. I'm, but it is that's interesting. But it is a pretty good avatar, I guess. It's not you know we're not seeing you move around, but you you it caught a pretty good uh, caught you in a pretty good situation. <laughs> What I so I'm just seeing a black screen. Are you seeing like a still image of me? I see a still image of you that looks like you possibly froze it and used it and created an avatar out of it. Well, cool. Maybe maybe I will just leave it like that. I hope everybody can hear me. Oh, Justin's got a great question. Justin writes, I might have missed it, but what was the reason for two samples taken at the end of 2022 that talk about that, but I can explain why. Um, we took a sample in July. So ahead of we, our verification date is, is uh, scheduled on our golf calendar for uh, the first week of August. And um, it was, you and I had discussed after last year's report that there was the potential that we, if we felt all the conditions were good and we weren't seeing um, any sort of issue that would make us think we had to airify or put holes and fill holes in some way, that we would probably, uh, we would be comfortable skipping any kind of airification in 2022. And so the samples that we took um, that you see the four point, I think it was 4.7 was the average, I'll bring um, that back up. It that was in July, and um, those were done as sort of a CYA, I guess, um, to to say, okay, we we don't have some major issue here, and we're comfortable with skipping the um, the August verification. So that that's what that was, um, right? Because you you'd gone twenty twenty in the twenty twenty one season the organic matter didn't change. It went from 4.9 at the end of 2020 yep. to 4.9 at the end of 2021. Yep. And then you put some sand in the autumn of 2021, and then you did a single top dressing in May of 2022, and everything was perfect. And the question was, do you need to disrupt the greens in August or not? So that, that testing in mid-July was to say let's just make sure that we're not that we don't have a blind spot here yep. to uh the organic matters increasing below the surface but we don't realize it um and it turned out that it tested basically the same as it did in autumn so it was like okay let's ride it out to the end of the year yeah and you you and i have talked about that increase so it went from 4.7 to 5.2 which is a half a percentage point 
and maybe there's something and maybe it's a, a, a maybe it's a result of you know it's just sort of random sampling maybe getting more sand in those samples than there was in the past but it may also be something inherent about the way that the, the plant material is at that time of year versus the way the plant material is in um, in October that just gives that result. Because if we go back to the first time we ever did this, which was mid-May of 2019, um, it was a really low result too. So those are sort of outliers from the, the time series if that's... Yeah. And, and I think if anybody remembers the growth curves that you see that that take a side view of a turf grass plant above ground and a turf grass plant below ground and you remember those types of charts that you'll see in the textbook and it shows a uh, a shrinking of the root system in the summer and then it shows an increase in the root system and in the carbohydrate storage below ground in the autumn so we're looking here at midsummer, and if it matches the textbook, it would be expected that you'd have a shrinking of the carbohydrate reserves in the below ground plant material in the summer and an increase in the autumn. So that's speculate that's one speculation for the reason why there could be that difference from July to October. Yep. But the main thing that I would recommend if you're doing this testing is don't do it too often and don't do it at different times of the year. So don't, don't compare spring to autumn, spring to autumn, spring to autumn. Just if you're doing spring, compare spring to spring. And if you're doing autumn, do autumn to autumn. And I don't recommend doing the testing mid season unless it's for this kind of just little checkup and make sure that you're in the ballpark. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like to use the word blind spot. Um, and I think that's a good way to do it. I mean, certainly now we look at that and we think, well, we could have, we could have probably gotten away without that test in July, but it was, it was a relatively, uh, cheap from a, a an expense and a time standpoint, uh, check to just tell us that we were going to be okay there. So I suppose if we would do this every year and there's really no reason to, but if we were to, to sample at that time every year, we'd probably see a, that number continue to remain uh, pretty low that's that's right so yeah I, i'm i think it makes sense to do it and you're not the only one of atc's clients who has done this type of mid-summer testing just to see where things are at in fact one of my other clients um, in canada they did some testing in the summer if if i recall correctly and they'd found that the organic matter had gone up uh, substantially and they said okay so now that I still have some some time before the end of the season where I can work some more sand into the canopy uh, yeah. I'm going to take advantage of that time to do that so um, I I think it if you're curious about it that this test doesn't cost very much money and right. it's it doesn't take much time to collect the samples and, and, and maybe Maybe going forward, sorry to interrupt, maybe going forward when, when if we have a year when we are gonna skip that verification in August, um, maybe maybe it does make sense to do this just to make sure. And, and then maybe over time we have that as a time series. So we kind of see that that, uh, what happens there, I, you know, it might mm -hmm. be interesting, so. So John Rowland says variability in soil samples can be quite high. He's also found substantial differences in seasonal organic matter levels, and that's correct. And uh, just to talk about the 
variability that I expect with the number of samples that we're sending. So I've done some research about this and I expect that the, uh, the real number. So, so what we're showing here is the average based on some samples, but, uh, there's a lot of variation. There's a lot of unsampled area on those greens, right? We're taking tiny cores, uh, and we're taking five cores per green. So, and your test, these averages are showing for the autumn sampling, we're showing the averages of six greens. So it's the average of a total of 30 cores. And with that number, with that amount of subsampling, um, and, and, uh, taking the average of that for, for the typical golf course, I expect that the error on this is half a percent up and half a percent down. So for example, looking at your 5.2% in autumn, um, I would expect that the real number is between 4.7 and 5.7. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's like a statistical analysis of where that number really is. So um, it, I would just explain it this way. We are we're not digging up the entire green and measuring all the organic matter. We're just sampling from the green. So there has to be some error. And, um, I, I know that your greens are a little bit more consistent than, than average. So probably our precision is even better than that. Well, but, and when I, when I sample, I do, you know, as probably anybody does, I, I make an attempt as much as I can see it visually to not take an area that I think is a, is a, an airification channel um this year that was that was more it was more total more random because i couldn't see any airification channels but if if i can see that that is where we airified and filled with sand then i will avoid that spot i also try to avoid areas that are obviously um, sand splash areas from bunkers um so that we don't we don't get those spots as well so um but i feel like it's a pretty across 30 cores as you said micah on on six different greens that are all pretty consistent we're getting a pretty uh <clears throat> pretty representative uh sampling i think good so daniel asked a question in the chat also he says do you see a benefit if the numbers increase in the deeper parts like four and six centimeters and i think uh, i have a couple of charts that i can show about that so we can just see what those numbers are and then we can talk about if there's a benefit um, here's your data from two to four centimeters, Chris, mm -hmm. and that I would say what I've just described in answer to John's question or comment about variability. Um, this to me is a straight line. We're looking at something that goes from 2.7 to 2.5, 2.9, 2.7, 2.6. Um, so this is at the two to four centimeter depth. And to me, that is basically a a flat line and um so is there a benefit if the numbers increase um i think we should try to maximize the organic matter in the soil so uh, as long as the surface performance is fine as long as water still moves through the mm -hmm. root zone then i'm happy to see a small increase and you'll actually see that in the next chart but let's talk about this one just a little bit before I move on to the next one, Chris. Um, two to four centimeters below the surface is not very deep. That right. is 
that is 0.8 inches depth down to 1.6 inch depth. Yeah. So we're, we're basically, um, it's certainly less than two inches below the surface. It's, it's 0.8 to 1.6 inches below the surface. That, that's not very deep. And it's interesting that, you know, it's, the organic matter is not accumulating there, even though you're not removing cores. Yeah. Um, certainly this year, you didn't remove cores. And you didn't top dress very much. Uh, well, certainly you didn't put any sand down to that depth. Right. And the organic material is just staying constant. Yeah. So it's... It's something that 10 years ago I would have been so scared of and think you have to punch holes, you have to get sand down into the root zone, you have to do this, you have to do that. But when we look at these numbers below the surface, it's pretty flat. Yeah, it's it's I think that's I think that's really interesting. And you know, you we don't really spend much time on on the the two to four and the four to six in in sort of thinking about recommendations, but I think you make a really good point. And um I think that point is is more of a for clarification as people ask these questions or think about you know how is grass on a putting green uh, adding to adding organic matter to the system. I think that's what this is showing more than anything. And to your point, it's it's not. It's really not adding anything to the system once you get below, as you said, 0.8 inches, which is really not very deep at all. Um, just simply growing grass. And of course, this is growing grass in the way that I grow grass, which is um, maybe not the same as, as everybody. Um, you know, we, we grow only a certain amount, but I think most people try to grow uh, a pretty small amount of grass. And it, this shows really uh, that it, it's not, that is not adding to the organic matter in the soil by any means, hardly at all. But one of the wonderful things of this testing that can be so useful is you can find out for your site if there is something happening down below the surface and if you would need to put sand um, down there. Yeah. So if you saw this spiking and go from 1% to 2% to 3%, yeah. and and maybe that happens with seashore paspalum. It, I mean, it doesn't, uh, but uh, maybe that happens with fine fescue or, or something like that. And you might see, wow, the greens are getting a little bit softer. The water, uh, it seems like water is being held near the surface a little bit. And the organic material is spiking down below the surface. Then that tells you, you either need to get more sand down to that level, or you need to remove some of that organic material um, at that level. Yeah. So uh, it, it's still useful to me, but I think it's been, it turns out that in the years of doing this, um, I found a lot of golf courses where it just stays flat like this. And then the, the thing where it becomes useful is just giving confidence or the, the way in which it becomes useful to me is it gives a lot of confidence that we can skip some of that sand, um, putting sand down to that depth. Um, because if, if things didn't change from year to year, why would we need to put sand down to that depth? Right. Right. Yeah. I, I think you're right. I mean, this, you know, it, this just tells me putting sand on the surface, uh, year after year is, um, is, is, is probably not certainly, certainly. And we've talked about, uh, airifying and what we will probably do next year. 
Um, that's been a part of, that was a part of the report this year, but, um, certainly this, this tells me that, uh, a year of sand just going on the surface is not impacting us in a negative way, uh, really anywhere in the whole system, but certainly at any level deeper than, you know, two centimeters, it's not so. And then the next chart, uh, shows what's happened at the four to six centimeter depth. And this, this is is definitely showing a trend up but it's just right around average for bent grass greens mm -hmm. so this has gone from one percent or 1.1 percent if we just look at the autumn testing it's gone 1.1 percent in 2019 1.1 percent in 2020 1.4 percent in 2021 and 1.4 percent again in 2022 so that that's creeping up if you can see that chart um but it's to me that's not really problematic because it's still right around the average for creeping bent grass so it seems if i think about these three areas you, you think that oh, zero to two is you're gonna you're gonna the om that's getting added to that area is going to be um is going to be the, the highest because it's coming from from growing actively actively growing plants, so you're going to have the most amount of organic matter added at that depth. But then we also have the greatest ability to affect that depth and dilute with sand. So that's that's kind of what we're doing there. That's why it's staying roughly roughly the same. And then at the four centimeter depth, um, and and you can tell me if you agree with this, Micah. There's there's any depth below zero to two. Some part of zero to two becomes two to four each year. So some amount of what's in the two centimeters in the next year is going to be in the next sample. And mm -hmm. then, um, but I, I might also imagine that some of that in that area, because there's going to be still a pretty healthy root mass in there. Um, and, and we feel like now the plant, the growth of the plant is not contributing a lot to that OM. So some of that two to four is going to be, um, is going to be broken down and used by the plant as uh, as nitrogen or become, um, so, so, uh, hopefully this is making sense. And then again, at four to six, some portion of two to four is gonna become the four to six in the next year. Mm -hmm. By that point, you know, you so I would expect that the four to six is gonna continue to go up regardless of what happens, just because the, the higher amounts of OM above it are being slowly, uh, are slowly becoming part of that, uh, that, that area, that, you know, range. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be minor, I think, yeah. because if, if we think of a hundred year old root zone, um, this is still a young root zone. How old are these greens, Chris? Uh, 12 years old this past August, 12 years old. So uh in in potting green age is that young or medium age medium i would say for a usga green i mean you know if you figure i don't know i know there are usga greens out there that have been around for a long time but i think most of them last you know you figure most people figure 25 to 30 years so let's say they are uh in the middle of their life somewhere okay so let they we would call it middle middle aged um so it's certainly the the less organic matter it's it's interesting the 
the lower the organic matter is in the soil, the more rapidly it accumulates. But then as you have more and more organic matter in the soil, uh, it accumulates mu much slower and eventually it won't accumulate anymore because the microbial population will break it down at the same rate that it's produced. And you'd have to grossly over-fertilize mm -hmm. and turfgrass managers do not grossly over-fertilize uh, because it causes so many problems for them. So um, we might accidentally over-fertilize a little bit or inadvertently uh, grow the grass a little bit too fast, but um, I think everybody's striving to get just the right growth rate and and uh, growing the grass too fast and producing too much organic material is uh, never uh, is a good way to do it. And so I think that what you would tend to see on a really mature green and an old green is it would not accumulate. It, it would just be flat basically. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, but yeah, I think for, for the, the greens that are your age, maybe we would see it continue to increase and I'll just show, we can combine all these depths and then the chart that I show now, um, to me, this is really the, uh, well, this is an important one to think about, do we need to put some more sand down into that zero to six centimeter depth, which is the zero to 2.4 inches. And if we look at the autumn samplings, again, this is uh, 2019 started at 2.5% and it's gone 2.5, 2.9, 2.9, and now three. So this combines the zero to two, the two to four, and the four to six centimeter depths and it's gone up and it's still below average for bent grass greens. But this is what I wrote in the, well, I, I, I wrote in the report that I would suggest that given this type of increase over three growing seasons, it would make sense next year. And looking at the upcoming tournament schedule and all of that, that, uh, you do try to bump that down just a little bit next year. Mm-hmm. But I mean, this is this is what's typical, I guess. I mean, I guess this is the type of increase that uh, that I like to see because it just shows you're measuring performance, and the the greens are still firm enough, they're still fast enough, they're still smooth enough, they still drain. <laughs> it's it's like they're the the members are happy with the surface performance, um, right. and and they're healthy. You don't you know a lot of those things that they go much beyond what the organic matter is. Um, and so basically we could just like, basically we could just like keep doing no holes and, uh, not too much sand, but it seems like, yeah, why not maybe try to bump that back down to 2.7% or something with, with some holes and getting some sand down into that layer. Yeah. Well, and that, that brings up an interesting point because I think if you so now if we we've done the testing and now let's think about so what's happening out on the golf course and how are golfers reacting to this and and um you know what does the conventional wisdom say um you know to me I might guess that a lot of um turf grass managers are fe are fearful of the idea that if they don't use their maintenance time they lose their maintenance time and um you know, and, and so a person might say, well, I don't want to skip an aerification one year because then the next year the golfers are going to say, oh, it was so wonderful last year. Why do we have to do it this year? Um, 
And to me, this is where uh, th this testing and this data help that because you have uh, you have charts, you have a report from yourself, Micah, that says, okay, uh, er this was great. The conditions were great. Um, and we have data to show that the conditions were great in 2022. But my recommendation based on what we're seeing is that in 2023, we do take that verification period in August and we do make some holes that we've then fill with sand because, uh, you know, we wouldn't want to go. Uh, and and for us in 2024, we have the U.S. Amateur, which is at the end of August. So we wouldn't want to do anything in a, an verification window in August in 2024, obviously. Um, so let's let's look at ahead and say that in 2024, we're going to treat it just like 2022, where all we do is apply a large amount of sand ahead of winter. And then we just ride that through the season. So with that, anticipating that, looking at some of the numbers, let's do some holes in 2023. Let's fill them with sand and that will sort of, again, cover us and, and, and keep us, uh, keep us level and keep us in a, in a, uh, in a spot where we feel we're definitely going to be hundred percent comfortable, um, being able to produce the same conditions over and over and over again. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I made a couple notes before, uh, I made a couple of notes before uh, we got on this call and I said that I'm just looking at my notebook here um, that, yeah, well, we have this nice timeline of data. I think it just leads to the logical conclusion of this type of decision making where the organic matter is not changing so much in the soil in your particular root zone. So because of that, you don't feel an urgency to do disruptive work. You don't feel an urgency to put a lot of sand. Um, but then we can also look at how things have changed very slowly over the past few years, which allows us to anticipate into the future what uh, what may change. And, and you can just make decisions that, uh, to me, it's you have so much confidence. I, I would think that I would have so much confidence as a turf grass manager that I'm managing the organic material really well and managing the playing conditions really well because the the point is to do all the essential work that we have to do and and make sure that things are not deteriorating and by but then when you test it and find out that you're not having the organic matter accumulate and it's not accumulating down below the surface it allows you with confidence to say you know what we will cut back on the, on the top dressing. So this is definitely the way, I mean, it's, it's different than the way you managed in, in 2015, for example. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I see a couple of things. Justin says, great chat. He has to run. So thanks for tuning in, Justin. And, uh, um, Pedro's got a question too, which I think is a good one, but let me finish your thought. Um, it, it is. And, and so something that I have, um, noticed as we've as we've um, gone through this transition from this let's say uh, conventional way of of top dressing greens which is some small amount of sand that is uh, a thought to be something that the golfers don't notice being applied in some regular schedule whether that be weekly every two weeks every every month whatever that might be moving from that to where we put an amount of sand down um, 
at the beginning of the year for us at the beginning of this cycle, which is, uh, which is in the fall of the year. And then we, we let that go. We don't put any more sand down. So that was something that I sort of accidentally came to in 2020 when we just didn't, we weren't top dressing. We were, we were so busy. It was the pandemic year. We were, we were busy all the time. You know, every, every day felt like three days, everybody was exhausted. And even just like going out and top dressing green seemed like a, a huge endeavor to me. But at the same time, you know, it was, it was like, I thought, okay, it's time to top dress. And then we didn't. And then the next week and the week after I thought, oh, wow, the greens are still great. And uh, we didn't top dress again. And then I thought, well, it's time to top dress. We should maybe think about it. We didn't do it. And the greens just continued to be better. So then in 2021, we did that with with intent. In 2022, we did that with intent. And and one of the things I found is not only is there no uh, there's no decline in the type of conditioning that we're providing. Again, there's there's a lot that goes into this. You have to grow the right amount of grass. You have to have to uh, you know do all those things appropriately. But but what I found is that um, you just don't see any kind of summer decline. And we see it. I think many of us will know that. There's a lot of discussion about rolling. I need to skip this roll. I need to skip a mow. And it's all about, you know, the turf is in the middle of the summer and it's really stressful and it's starting to decline. But I, I have noticed the past three years when we put no sand on the greens throughout the course of the, the season in the summer, um, especially during that stressful period, we don't see any of that decline because the, the, the plants are not being damaged. This is This is my opinion. The plants are not being damaged by that proximity to sand or having that sand right at the surface that they're constantly being pressed into or pushed into and you don't get this damage to the leaf tissue uh that's that's taking place you know continuously day after day after day so in in any of these last three years 2020 2021 or 2022 we have seen no um summer decline i would call it and we've we've not really had to adjust any mowing or rolling schedules um, you can see on the screen, this is a, a look at uh, our green speed for the uh, over the last three years. 2019, I started taking green speed every day uh, in June, mid, late, uh, late June, so right in here. So here's these solid lines are a seven-day average. So you can see this gold line kind of goes up and down. So that's 2019. Um, that was with a typical top dressing schedule. We saw some summer decline. So you can see, you know, maybe we had a little nice period of weather here and the green speed came up and then it got hot and it went down and then it came back up and then we airified in here and it went down. You can just see that, see there's some, some variability there. Again, this the solid lines are a seven day moving average. So it does take some of that out, but you can also see as, as the years have gone by. So green is 2020. Again, some of that inconsistency throughout the summer. And then 2021 is red. Okay, now I feel like in 2021, I'm starting to get a handle on this idea that without all this top dressing sand constantly present on the surface, we really don't have to um, change our mowing routine. We don't have to change our, our rolling routine. So we start to get into the summer months and we see some really nice consistency. This line here is, is, is uh, uh, 12. So you can see what those speeds are like. And then blue this year, um, maybe a little more variability, but it's still variable at a, at a high level. Um, and it's nice so, in your August, September, October was really nice this year. Yeah, it was. And um, you when know, you did that, not do anything in August. Nothing at all. You, 
this little dip was we did the, the, we took the opportunity we had that week where we did some air fine around the golf course and we just broomed the greens uh four straight days to sort of you know uh impact the turf um they were they were maybe a little bit of like scuffiness to the the bent grass so we we uh we did some brooming so that's where you see that dip but you can see it came back up quickly 2021 the red line there's a uh there's a a period here from this dip in august to the end of the season where it's really up and down and the speed was down below 12 you can see and that was just an airification that just did not heal very well um and and so we we lost some consistency there there was more sand on the surface there were holes still present um, that kind of thing so um i just i think to kind of wrap that up a little bit and then i see some questions that maybe we can answer uh, to wrap up this side I, I just my as a turf manager is you know having really great surfaces doesn't mean that we're just on the verge i, I this is again conventional wisdom is and you'll hear this from golfers. We've all probably heard it from golfers. When the greens are at their best, that's when they airify. And so we've all heard that. And we've all kind of come back with, including myself, come back and said, well, yeah, but if we don't do that, if we don't do this airifying, then they won't be this good, you know, come next year. Come the tournament that's really important in two months, they won't be as good. And we say that to golfers. But what, I'm, what I would challenge everyone to think about is, is that true? is that the right we say it is that is that true or can we just mow and let's say i'm simplifying things but mow and roll greens every single day produce a really great surface all throughout a season with very minimal disruption minimal little to no disruption and just say yeah they were really great all year and we call it we just call it what it is they're great doesn't mean that without that work they're they're imminent demise it doesn't mean that next year we won't be able to produce the same surfaces or, you know, maybe the next year we do need to do something. We do need to adjust our window and we do need to do something like we're going to do in August next year. But again, the data is there. The charts are there. The visuals are there for people to be able to say, OK, yeah, I understand why if you skipped it last year, we're going to do something this year. Very good. Yeah, that's um, I, can, I can talk about that for a long time, but Chris. You've got a couple questions, Pedro. Yeah. Pedro is asking what uh, what Can is you, the Im amount of sand? Yeah, the, I think he's asking the maximum amount of sand that we can put down without without an airification or some kind of hole to then put the sand into. Mm -hmm. And I I have an answer. I have found that that is uh, 0.8 millimeters. So I, I should have the um, I apologize for not having the the uh mass to area trends um uh conversion to that but 8.8 .8 millimeters is what i've found i'm comfortable putting on the green running some kind of a gentle um mat over to to even it out to to mat it in and then having golfers go back out and play on that um that will leave the surface pretty sandy that is not going to be a like water it in and you're good um that's going to be a, a top dressing amount that I'm probably going to want to wait a week or so before we go back out and mow. Um, but that's, that's about the max, anything beyond that. And you're almost talking about like um, the ball, the sand, it, it, you're, you're, it's almost amounts that the wind will leave sort of uh, ripples, I guess it, it'll, it'll like drift, drift on you if it's super windy. Um, 
but I'll put more out than that. I would do double or triple that. Um, I think our amount that we put out this winter ahead of the winter was 2.5 millimeters total. So that's a lot of sand and it's, but it is that's funny. in two, one application or two to get that. I, out. I did that in two applications. I could do it in, 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 um, one, I suppose, but it gets, you get more uniformity when you do it in a smaller, a multiple smaller applications. But I can see now, um, when we've had some snow and then the snow is melted and we've got some greens that are exposed and we've had some wind, I can see little ripples in the green where the, the sand does sort of, uh, you do get a, like mini sand dunes in there, but it, that doesn't concern me. We'll go back out and take care of that in the spring. So, um, so, so that's hopefully that answers Pedro's question. Um, Joe Gulati, uh, asks, is there August, the aeration August window of, 23 will you dry jack core top dress solitine top dress top dress solitine um and not certain yet it probably i would probably tend to uh top dress and solitine but you know there's part of me that thinks um that a, a very small like a, a a quarter inch core or so to a very you know to a depth that's going to be maybe two inches or so brought up and then that drug around and and with some top dressing and added back to the holes that maybe there's some value to that so uh it's a good question that i don't quite have the answer to yet joe um but i think i on our greens a solid tining works uh or a very a solid tining i think is the best has i've found gives the best results and the quickest healing so that that's what i would sort of lean towards um and then John Roland makes kind of a, a statement, I guess, where he says, we are still developing management practices and should not rely on old accepted standards without further investigation. I, I think that's a great way to put it, John. Um, you know, I guess I guess one of the other things that I, uh, I would say is that it's okay to, to do these things. Uh, I don't want to suggest that we should stop airifying, stop top dressing. That's, that's not my stance at all. But but I would suggest and, and hope that what people are learning from some of the things we've done in the chats that Mike and I have, uh, the blog posts I've, I have written is that you should, we should really have an answer to why we're doing it. So if a, if a, golf, if a golfer comes up to us and says, um, hey, the, the greens, of course, the greens were just perfect and now you got to airify them. And your answer, our answer is, um, well, we have we have to do it because you know you want them to be good two months from now. You want them to be good next year. We shouldn't just say that. We should we should have some data and some uh, real understanding of what we're doing that that can back that up. Um, so that next year in 2023, when the greens are great, and we then do some kind of airification at the beginning of August, and a golfer says, "Oh, God, they've been so good for so long, and now you're going to do this," that I can say, "Here's why." I can show them a chart. I can show them the the uh, recommendations and the reports that Micah has put together for us. And I can say, this is why we're doing it. And you know what? The plan is to not do this again next year, but we're going to do it this year. And these are the reasons. Um, that's that's what I want. That's what I want us to get to. And to John's point, you know, we have established management practices in this industry that uh, obviously have improved conditioning. Um, obviously have made for better golfing conditions on a more consistent basis. 
But then I feel as though some of those practices have then gone to a point and gotten past the point. Now they've gone to a point where we go, okay, I don't know that they are now improving things anymore. We're doing them more frequently. We're doing them uh, more often, but is that giving us better conditions than what we were doing in the past? We think they are because there's this human nature is sort of if, if one, if doing something is better than doing more of it must be even better than that. Um, and it's not always the case. And, and that's what I want us to, the point, the, the place that I want us to get to as, as turf managers so that we can, um, we can, we can be able to tell our members, yeah, this is what we definitely need to do this year or, uh, no, we don't need to do it. And you can enjoy, uh, wonderful putting conditions every single day for the entire golf season. Yeah. I think, um, something comes to mind that I think you, you mentioned earlier about, uh, maybe you can just do this for one year, but you couldn't possibly continue it. Um, and that's something that I hear a lot. Sometimes uh, I recall an incident at the Masters last year where I was talking about this with um, one of the volunteers, and and you were there too, Chris. And we talked about some of the work that you were doing and and the way that you're managing the grass. And and I think I asked the question: if this is if this is possible at Hazeltine, wouldn't it be possible at other places? And the response came back, well, sure, it can work for one year, but it won't work. You, you can't manage like this year after year after year. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's kind of the conventional wisdom of thinking we have to have, you know, the spring and autumn verification. We have to do weekly top dressing or, or that kind of thing. That's a common response. But I think it's from people that aren't collecting these data of what the playing conditions actually are, and they're not collecting the data of how the organic matter is changing. So the, and I also hear this type of response when I give seminars about this around the world. A lot of people are intrigued by it. Turfgrass managers are intrigued by this, but they're very doubtful that it could actually work because they expect everybody's afraid of the organic matter accumulating too much. So Mm -hmm. everybody has the expectation that if they don't do the top dressing on a regular schedule, and if they don't do the coring and filling those holes with sand or the dry jacking or whatever, that things could get a little bit out of control. So they expect it could work for a month. It could work for two months. It could work for one summer, but it wouldn't work for the long term. And I would just encourage people to, measure the playability and measure what's happening with the organic matter and find out the perfect amount of work to do it at your course. Because it's not that you're not doing anything, Chris, you're, you're still spreading sand. You're in fact, like you're very lucky in the type of climate that you have that you can dump all this sand in really high doses that makes the greens unplayable, but it's in the winter. So if, if this was in a tropical climate where the course was open and didn't have the closure, there would have to be sand going out during the season, right? So it's like you just find something that works for your place. But I think, I think for me, these numbers, the organic matter numbers and being able to measure the effect of the work and measuring how the organic matter is changing, it's, it's very useful in making sure that you're doing enough work and 
And I'm it just, tells you uh, if you need to do more also. I'm, so, I'm sorry that I'm not looking. I'm just uploading some photos to just kind of, because the question does come on, on this topic. Because you're not doing this regularly, are you seeing layering and is that a problem? Um, and I think we can talk about that a little bit. Um, let's see, Graham has a question. When you compare applying top dressing in bulk prior to the season to the conventional little and often, would the quantity of which be the same or so allow, have, have allowances been made to allow the same results from a golfer's point of view? Um, so I think, I think what he's asking is, are we maybe, see if I get this right, are we applying more or less sand because we're doing it all at one time than if we were applying it throughout the season? And have we sort of plotted that out? I think that's how the question's being being asked. Um, I guess I don't know the answer because I didn't keep track when we did regular small top dressings. I wasn't keeping track of the amount like this. And I doesn't that, in, and when you look back on that to interject, Chris, doesn't that seem crazy looking it, well, back it on it? It makes me scratch my newly... Um, I like my newly, that. My new haircut. I'm um, glad your I'm glad your camera's working, so we can all admire <laughs> your your lovely haircut. We we originally had thought of doing this yesterday, um, yeah. when we when we were setting the schedule, and then you looked at your calendar and you said, "I've got a haircut." <laughs> right, and you, what you thought? Well, that's perfect because you'll be freshly you'll have a fresh haircut, and this is you know, um, I'm 45 years old now, and my hair isn't what it once was, but. Um, this seems like a nice option uh, at this point in, in time. Um, so, you know, it, it does seem crazy that I didn't think about how much sand was going down. And I so wish that I had, because then I could answer Graham's question and say, how much were we putting down in the past versus how much are we putting down now? Um, and so I, I, I don't know if it's the same amount. Um, here, here's another Here's another thought that is, um, so Micah, do you, you want, want to share to... that screen again? I've got yeah, some, I'll bring some it up. Yep. pictures from this year's sampling. Here's another thought. And so another thing that we're looking at on this, uh, um, these samples, and that I don't think that the, any of the data on it is ready for any kind of like uh, discussion, but we're, Micah, you have a, a little study you're doing that you're looking at the sand fractions within these cores, correct? To That's see correct. what that looks like. And there's nothing to say what the answer is, but I have, or I, there's no results, I guess, from these studies yet. But, but what I've talked to our sand supplier here in Minnesota, who supplied the, the sand for the greens when they were built and continues to supply top dressing sand, and he supplies sand all over kind of this, this region. Um, and one of the things that has happened with sand, and he confirmed this, is that as time has gone on and we have wanted to put out sand in small amounts that are not noticeable or not impactful to the golfers, and we want to do it regularly, um, the sand, the size of the sand particles has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller, because obviously if you put a large particle uh, a large sand particle on, on the green, uh, you know, the ball's going to bounce off of that and it's going to create a problem or mowers are going to just go out and pick up what you've laid down. But what we're able to do with this type of top dressing is we're able to put down the same speck of sand that was in the construction mix. 
Um, it's a USGA construction spec, so it's a larger size. Um, some of the pieces are surprisingly large when you see them there. But because we put them down before the winter and we don't really have to worry about golf being played over the top of this sand, we're, we're getting, you can, you can look at these cores. I, I don't know if you can see that from your video, but when you look at these cores, the, 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 the way that the sand looks, it's not the buildup of fine particled sand that we can sometimes see in a putting surface that's been top dressed over many, many years. And I, I just think that as time goes on, um, that is really going to benefit us in that with our top dressing program, we're building up a, a mix uh, that is very similar to what's below. So we're not, um, we're not going to result in the, you know, this uh, a new perched water table on top of the, the root zone mix. Um, so I, I don't know if you have any commentary on that, Micah, but. Yeah, I, I, I think when you top dress with finer sand, it, it definitely changes things. And uh, I've, I am doing a research project where we're burning the samples and then doing sand fractions on them. And it's, it's interesting. I saw one, uh, I mean, there's only one course that had kind of, uh, a layer of fine sand that was actually at the two to four centimeter depth where it spiked. So it was actually coarser at the zero to two centimeter depth, but that course had done a, a resurfacing about five years ago and i think somehow when they did the resurfacing somehow that finer sand got introduced at that layer um, but i expect if we would do this at more and more properties we would start to see some uh, that do have fine particles closer to the surface uh, compared to deeper in the profile because of uh, constantly trying to put sand and and selecting for sands that that do work into the canopy and um i i think it all comes back to the growth rate really i i think that uh i think we underestimate what one unit of nitrogen produces in terms of growth and produces in terms of organic matter production underground so for me that it it kind of comes back like the amount of sand that we need to put comes back to how much we're making the grass grow so i encourage people to measure the clipping volume to make sure that you can safely um, get close to the optimum level of growth because too little growth is a huge problem it equals dead grass and bare ground and it's completely unacceptable so you can't just go blindly trying to grow the grass as slow as possible but the best playing conditions are when the grass is growing as slowly as possible the lowest sand top dressing requirement happens when the grass is growing as slowly as possible and for that reason it's desirable to have the grass growing as slowly as possible um, and i think it's very dangerous to do that unless you're measuring the clipping volume so it turns out that uh, clipping volume to me is 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 a really useful thing that that does tie in with this i i think micah that i think people would be surprised at how little they can grow the grass when they are not top dressing throughout the golf season um, mm -hmm. because it doesn't have to recover from the, I think they'd be surprised at the amount of damage that that does. They don't think it does, but I think it, it results, as I mentioned earlier, I think it is part of the result of the summer decline that we, so many of us see on bent grass in the, in this part of the world. Um, 
and then I think that they, you know, that requires a larger amount of of growth, and so I I think people would be surprised if they implemented a program like this and they started to and they're keeping track of all these numbers. I think they'd be surprised at how consistently low the growth levels can be during the course of the golf season um, without having to recover from or grow through sand. Um, I, I know I have, and I, I continually kind of keep, you know, we, we keep in communication throughout the golf season. And, and this year, you know, I made an adjustment in how much nitrogen I was putting out during the course of the season, because I was, you know, I felt like, you know, we were, we were growing too much grass. Um, but you know, the grass was growing nicely because it wasn't damaged and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't having to recover from anything. It was just, you know, sitting there being mowed and rolled every day and, and uh, reacting pretty, pretty strongly to any amount of nitrogen that went down. As you said, you know, the, this one small unit of nitrogen does an awful lot when the grass is, is pretty happy and healthy. Yeah. And so, yeah, all these things kind of tie together and the USGA green section record, I think uh, last Friday, had an article about data collection either last Friday or the Friday before. I've got that in my retweet queue, so I'm going to tweet about that. And I know um, the the USGA Green section has shared that on Twitter, um, and some other people have even responded. I saw a tweet uh, yesterday that came up in my feed where somebody, um, Jim Pavanetti, maybe, uh, if I remember right, he said something like, "This was." Last year he tried this. It was the first, or or this season was the first year that he tried all that data collection, and he said he he uh, he learned more this year than he'd learned in his previous fourteen years as a superintendent, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And and I know every, I'm 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 maybe more averse to uh, adding on new time-consuming data collection steps than the average person. Uh, I you have to drag me uh you have to tell me a hundred times before i will ever start doing any of this stuff i was aware of this type of organic matter testing um 15 years ago and people told me that it was really useful and it went in one ear and out the other but then finally when i start doing it it's like wow it seems essential same thing with you know measuring top dressing sand all of these things that they can become just part of the task it's like when you go to mow a green you have to take, if it's a walking greens mower, you have to take the wheels off of it, right? You have to take the wheels off of the mower before you mow the green. Mm -hmm. If you have to take the flag out of the hole to, you know, before you mow across that area of the green, there's a number of procedures that are just part of the task. And I think which, one of which includes uh, dumping the grass out of the basket. And right. <laughs> One of which involves dumping the dumping the grass out. And so you can add on things that do take a little bit more time, but it is a tiny amount of time. And you, we keep hearing people who do this, who it, people don't realize how useful this can be and how much it can put you in control. Be, because actually you're, a lot of things are out of control, right? The the weather is is out of our control and some t disease or insect outbreaks would be out of our control and the 
damage from from traffic and so on from golfers that's unpredictable sometimes but to be able to have as much control as possible it's nice to know how much the grass is growing how much nitrogen how much nitrogen is being supplied uh what's happening underground um all these things can just be so useful and uh i i think it it leads to to us able to manage as you demonstrate in in a way where you can change things year after year and make it better year after year well my my data collection origin story always goes back to the the 2016 Ryder Cup when you were here Micah and it was the week before the event uh, which oftentimes people refer to as uh, advanced week advanced week and um, you were talking about clipping volume and I could tell that had I said, to had I just had I given the green flag that there would have been a clipping volume uh, collection operation that would have taken place that week. But, you know, being where I was at that point, not having done any of this collection and being like most superintendents are sort of resistance to this idea of adding things that I thought were going to be complicated. I was just sort of like that, not, not, not now, man, we can't like, I'm not going to, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. But, you know, now I look back on it and I just I wish I would have because it was <laughs> I started doing it immediately uh, the next season. And it would have been kind of cool to have that data from that event. But um, it it's you know, I tell that to everybody and I say, just start start. And once you start doing it, you will uh, you will not stop and you will recognize how valuable it is. And you will start doing and you'll kind of look around and you'll say, OK, what's the next thing I need to collect? because you almost do get a little bit addicted to it. Um, and I think the, the, the results from it don't jump off the page after a day, a week, even a year necessarily. But in time, um, you, a, a person will see, you will see trends, you will see, I mean, just look, um, Mike, if you wanna share my screen one more time, yep. look, at this, look at this green speed chart and just look at how those while there are differences in these seven day averages these these lines look at some of the trends that are obvious uh, it's obvious that there's some amount of time coming out of a winter you know we're in a we're in a climate here where we are covered frozen and covered with snow for five months and it is obvious to me that coming out of that time there is some time necessary for that grass to grow in a way that supports championship level speeds and then it's, it's obvious here in the middle that when you do something like an aerification, that there is some impact uh, for some amount of time. And if the grass heals and comes back into play uh, really quickly, you, you recover really quickly and your conditions come back up and can stay consistent. But if you don't recover quickly, like the red line, then you stay at some suboptimal level. Uh, I say suboptimal because we, you know, this is not the type of speed we want to provide for our members. But um, and then you see at the end of the year, it falls off because basically we stop mowing. Uh, the grass isn't maintained anymore and, and winter comes and, and and that's what happens. But you just you you will see things, uh, you know, every day and every month over time. And you'll you'll learn more about your golf course. And quite honestly, in the end, I think what it would have provides the opportunity is to answer those questions when people say, do we really need to do this? Is this really necessary? And the answer, I think, more often than not, that you can give is, you know, it's not necessary. 
So just like 2022 here at Hazeltine, no, it wasn't necessary to airify. And so we went the whole season with without doing anything to the greens. Every single day, the greens were just uh, in, in perfect condition. Mode rolled, speed was great, um, no sand, no holes, no verticutting, no, none of that. And uh, at the end of the year, uh, the member praise was just uh, unbelievable. And, um, you know, of course, then we need to replicate that year after year. I guess we all know that the standards, once they come to a certain level, that's the new floor. And now you gotta, you gotta, so how do we, how do we continue to, to do that? Um, you know, it, it's, it, um, it's something we have to think about, but I'm confident that we can continue to maintain those conditions year after year, day after day. And if the year comes like next year, where we feel like August has to be a little bit more of an endeavor. There's a you know more holes, a little bit more healing time. I'm confident that I have the data to back that up. I have the uh, the knowledge to be able to say to them, this is what we need to do, and this is why we're going to do it. And um, you know, as soon as this is done and healed, we'll go on and we'll have great conditions again for the next uh, you know whatever period of time it's going to be until we need to airify again. So um, yeah, I'd, but you have the luxury of. Uh, you know, you had really good greens in 2016 and 2017 and 2018. And when you when you got into this data collection process, the greens were all already at a very high standard. Yeah. Um, not everybody has greens that are like that. So the other thing that this data can be used for is it, it can help to justify that you need to do more. Because I also hear sometimes that people aren't allowed to airify when they need to. And I hear that people aren't allowed to put as much sand as they need to. And then um, this type of data can be used for the reverse or, or the opposite of what you've described, where yeah. you said at Hazeltine, you're, it, the data allows you to identify things that... Uh, you did not have to disrupt the surface, but these data can also say, whoa, we need to disrupt the surface. We need to be disrupting the surfaces more than we have been in the past. And you can then track the benefit of that and use that to get the conditions to the, uh, to the level that they need to be. Yeah. So I think that, that's a great, a great point, Micah. And I, I do focus a lot on, um, doing the minimal amount because that that is the situation we're in here and it's probably the situation most people encounter but you're right um i i would you know part of me you know would be i would be really intrigued to go somewhere where you didn't have what we have here and and put these things into place and see how it it helps to you know uh turn around a situation that needs to be turned around because those those situations exist out there there's no doubt about it yeah i I have a lot of examples of data when I give seminars and stuff. I, I, I show examples of Hazeltine or Kea Golf Club or that type of thing where people have been successful with uh, not doing as much airification as they used to, not putting as much sand as they used to. Um, and I don't have so many examples to show of success stories of doing more work and improving the conditions. And it's not... But but this same method could be used for that, and I know there are places out there um, where where that would work. So uh, I I guess eventually I'll get some nice case studies of data of uh, of ramping up the amount of work, adding more sand top dressing, doing more uh, cultivation, 
to improve the conditions and then showing the conditions improve. And then at that point, once the, the conditions are where they need to be, then the work can be adjusted again to go back to something that's less disruptive. I'm also really intrigued at what this data would be like in a new situation where you, you know, have greens that get constructed from the, the very beginning. And so, you know, how does that, uh, what does that look like? And, um, you know, I think that would be really intriguing and, and this would all be very valuable in that, that kind of situation as well. So, yeah, it, it, it sure would. So anyway, i appreciate everybody joining us today and chris thank you so much uh if anybody has any more questions or comments please put them in the chat and otherwise we'll avoid over talking this subject so that we can uh we can I talk to, again when it's still interesting <laughs> i seem to recall that this is the way we we ended last year's discussion about at this time period and then all of a sudden people thought let's get a question in and um, oh, we had some, we have some people watching who I think are, I think are on the wrong channel, Micah. Yeah, let me, let me see if I can remove these hot girls are waiting here. I, I, think, <laughs> I think they might be disappointed, might be disappointed in what they're going to find in this. Um, yeah, they're probably not. They didn't get the content they were looking for. But I, I seem to recall that we, we, we sort of ended it like this last year. And then there were a number of questions that led us to another half an hour discussion, a half an hour or so discussion. Um, so yeah. anyway, let's see. Um, uh oh, well, maybe I, maybe I can't hide those, but, uh, <laughs> I blocked our sex finds dot biz. Uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing on the internet. How, uh, how, people try to make money from this type of stuff. <laughs> I don't know. I, I wonder if it's easier than growing grass at a, at a high level. Um, <laughs> I guess maybe. maybe so yeah. um, let's see what else you uh, I'm going to share again, Chris, your, your blog, uh, your medium blog. Oh yeah. Oh, now we know that's what happened. <laughs> oh, thanks, Joe. Joe that's said that's new, his new sponsor. New sponsor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, great. I guess we've, we've all been to conferences and there certainly is a, a, uh, a subset of the, the golf course superintendent, um, you know, uh, population who, who, uh, you know, would, would like that kind of sponsorship. So I don't think that's telling anything that it, and we don't all know. <laughs> Yeah, so your uh, your blog is ct-turf.medium.com, and you have a series of posts there that have kind of talked about this topic and about how you've uh, you've been thinking about disruption and thinking about how you manage the turf to have the best playing conditions possible. Yep. So, uh, for anybody uh, who hasn't seen that please check it out and i'll put a direct link to that blog in the show notes i'm sorry i'm just uh looking at another monitor over here yeah uh i have i did a series of posts kind of on this um subject last year and um was hoping to wrap it up last year but didn't get to that and then um actually 
I'm going to wrap it up now. I'm almost finished with that post. So just talking about kind of what we did at Hazeltine this year, how we use some of this data to to confirm um, that we're doing the right thing and that we're headed down the right path. And and um, and uh, yeah, look for that soon. Awesome. I look forward to reading it. All right. Any that that's nice. We get the the uh, hot girls comments right when i was asking if anybody had any closing comments it's almost like people were listening to (laughs) what we were saying they were listening they came here looking for something else but they found our discussion to be interesting enough that they wanted to comment when you asked if there were any comments because they 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 heart they gave us a heart and then a check mark which i think indicates that they probably you know got what they were looking for here so nice um we have Ryan's asked a question that I might ask him to clarify. He said, "How do you manage the data analysis while still maintaining the quality of the course?" Um, Chris, can you interpret that, or do you want some more? Yeah, clarification? I, I guess maybe he can clarify time? a little bit, but that might be a question asking the amount of time that it takes. And and um, you know, I guess I again, blessed with winter to be able to think about how to do this and to set up spreadsheets and to, and, and Micah and I have worked over the years, I've, I've, I've used him as a resource to try to develop the best type of uh, spreadsheet to, to track the data and to input the data. And so once I've gotten to that point where I have a, a great way to, to track the data, then putting it in is, is fairly um, simple um, and, and not very time consuming. I used to input, like I take a lot of the stint meter readings myself um, and I'll often do that in the morning as I go, as I follow up the, uh, the work that the crew is doing. And I used to input that into my phone, but it actually, I found it was much more tedious to try to input that into a phone and then I was pulling my phone out and as we all know you can kind of get distracted with other stuff and so what I started doing this year was I just uh, I would put it in a scorecard and I would just write the numbers down uh, on the scorecard and then come back and input the the stint meter data on the um, into the spreadsheet when I got back to the office um, it's it's not very time consuming um, it doesn't take the greens mowers hardly any time at all to dump their baskets into a uh, a five gallon pail that's graduated and shows shows the the leaders and then they just write it down on their phone or on a piece of paper and then they send me that information and then I usually input it uh, into the spreadsheet or if I'm not here or I'm not able to do so the assistants will uh, will oftentimes do that so it is it's not very time consuming. I think getting the spreadsheet set up so that you can input that data in the way that you want is probably the the most, uh, takes the most time. But also you now have uh, companies like Greenkeeper, um, the USGA has a program in which they can allow you to input this data. So some of that stuff is from a, uh, a data input and maybe an analysis standpoint is getting to be easier than um, than the way that I've done it over the years. So I hope that answers your question, Ryan. All right. I'm going to have another ATC office hours next 
Thursday afternoon in America time and uh, I think Friday morning in Australia and New Zealand. So it'll be the middle of the night Friday for our uh, friends in Europe. So I don't expect too many people from Europe to join, but perhaps uh, the talk next week, which is going to be with doctors Frank Rossi and Rock Gaswa about uh, why we are cultivating so much. And it's going to look at the past 25 years or 30 years or so of what, what the industry has been doing and what some of the research is, and then kind of look at where we are now and speculate where we may go into the future. Because uh, there were people, I, I had an email conversation with Rock this week, and he, he said in 1987, he'd had a conversation with a golf course superintendent who had stopped punching holes and, and had been doing so for some time and was getting great results. And, and I'm like, man, if, if we knew this, or if you knew this back in 1987, why, uh, why have we as an industry, uh, been punching so many holes and, and putting so much sand now, I know it's not, you know, every situation is different, but there's so many, uh, examples out there of places that are able to not punch holes year after year after year and get good results. And I'm just curious to talk with Frank Rossi and rock, um, who are, have taught seminars about this, have done a lot of research about it and are, are really world experts on this topic. So I hope some of you will join us for the office hours next week when we can talk about that also. That's a great topic. It'll be a great, uh, it'll be a great one after this because I, I can't wait to hear what they, what they have to say about it. It's, um, you know, every time we, we have these discussions, I think, and I think you and I have both had this experience, Micah, sometimes together at, whether it be at the masters or, or something else is that, um, people always come up and say, Oh yeah, I've been doing that for 20 years. Um, so there are super, there certainly are superintendents out there who are managing in this way and having likely and a lot of success. Um, and so I don't want to, I don't want to project the idea that I'm doing something that nobody else has ever thought about, but, um, I guess I would like to just see it become more mainstream. And again, the message that I would leave everyone with is not, um, just stop doing this, but make sure that you have a real, uh, a real idea and a real backup on, on why you are doing it. So that when you get asked that question, you're not just saying, well, to make them better. Um, I think that's, I think we can do better than that. So that's, that's what I, I would hope everyone will take from this. Mr. Johnny on the spot, who, if I remember correctly, is uh, Alan DeWald up in Canada. Um, it says, one idea I was pursuing is eliminating top dressing completely. Can we assign a growth rate necessary for recovery? And would it make economic or environmental sense to limit the amount of rounds played? That's, uh, you know, yeah, maybe that's something that we'll be talking about 10 or 20 years from now. Um, I, I don't think anybody knows the answers to that. I know Dan Dinelli in Chicago area, he's, I think he's trying to manage his new greens without top dressing. Um, if, if I remember correctly, I um, recall that that's the case. But because I think. He, he posts on Instagram. He posts all these videos on Instagram and, and I feel, or sometimes he posts stuff on LinkedIn. I wish he'd have a blog or post more on YouTube or something. Um, cause I, 
I sometimes don't see it all on Instagram, but you can check that out. It's North Shore Country Club Grounds or something like that. I, and you I may recall, have some updates. I recall Dan's thinking and Dan's intent is, we talked about a little bit earlier, is to not build some new profile on top of his his USGA profile, but to rather to see if he can just keep that USGA GA profile as the as the as the profile so he's not adding to it adding some you know so the, the all these specs for the usga profile are very carefully laid out to to have you know get the proper release curve and get water to hold in the exact way that we want and then we start to put something on top of it that maybe is or almost certainly isn't regulated in any sort of way um, you know maybe it's a fine textured sand um, but also the way that the organic matter goes into that is not, and it, it would be impossible to to have specs on that. But I think Dan's intent is to do very small aerification, bring up some sand, um, and just use that, utilize that as his top dressing. So it basically continues to recycle the profile back on the profile, the mix back on top, and just mm -hmm. keep that profile roughly the same. So. Um, I haven't seen, I've, I've talked with Dan a little bit about this and it's, he's, he's really fascinating to talk to and he thinks about this a lot. I haven't seen him in a, or talked with him in a couple of years. And so it'll be interesting to hear how that is going. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there, there must be a growth rate necessary for recovery, but I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think, um, paying attention to clipping volume and rounds played and, uh, green size. I think we could figure that out if we collected en enough data. Of yeah. uh, um, maybe we wouldn't know exactly what would fail, but we would know what works because pretty much everybody is growing the grass fast enough to be successful. So, um, and then yeah, you'd have to look at it on a site by site basis for economic or sand availability reasons um, to see if it would make sense to limit the rounds in order to um, optimize uh, the conditions at a particular property. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think, yeah, that's the type of thinking that, that we'll be doing going forward. All right. Any, any last questions before we close this out? I'm gonna, this will be recorded. I think this is <laughs> sunshine coast represent. Yeah. They're a little bit North of me today. Hi, Jason. Um, so this will be, I'll release this as a podcast on the ATC office hours podcast. Um, so if you're not subscribed to that, but you want to listen to this again, um, this is a nice long conversation that, uh, is reminiscent of some of the old talking greenkeeper podcasts that, that, uh, give you a lot of, uh, listening time. So this will be a podcast. And then I'll also have this, uh, it'll be recorded on YouTube and, and available for on-demand viewing. And I think on Facebook and I think on LinkedIn also, they archive the recording. So you can watch it on any of those channels. Excellent. Yeah, here we go. See, this is this is what happens. The questions and, and comments come right at the end. So Ryan says, thanks. That's what I was asking. Good. I'm glad we answered that the way he was, he was requesting. And then John says, the biggest hurdles that folks seem to encounter with data is just overcoming the hurdle of starting. Absolutely. Is the biggest hurdle for me, but once you get, once you get started, then you you kind of, it takes on a life of its own a little bit. So I agree with that. Just get started, get started with something simple, and you'll you'll likely move on from there. 
All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Thank you, Chris. You're welcome. It's been a great uh, discussion. Yeah, I I really enjoy you sharing the the data and sharing your experiences and thoughts with all of us. And maybe we can talk again at the maybe we can do this testing again next autumn and and uh, do this annual review again because um, I I think it will be really interesting to see what changes or what doesn't change in response to the way that you've managed the turf for another year. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Well, with that, everyone, I'm going to go ahead and end the stream and say thanks for joining us. And uh, we will talk again soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>